Our Scars Speak. My name is Christina Miner. I am the host of this podcast and YouTube. Now, make for sure afterwards, not right now because we got things to talk about, but make for sure afterwards you go to my YouTube and go to podcasts, which are Apple, we're on Apple, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Audible. And I think there's one more. But go there and look for Our Scars Speak and you should be able to find this. So everything we do here will upload. So go there, subscribe there to our YouTube channel. Same thing, Our Scars Speak. If you want to know a little bit more about me, please go to www.cminerllc.com. And there you can find me and find out about all the good things that we're doing, as well as sign up for the email. And then I'll send you a blog every month, sometimes a little bit more, but once a month, definitely. So I'm going to get to who our guest is tonight. But, as of course, the disclaimer is we are not providing advice at all. We want you to talk to your medical professionals to get the information that you need for your specific treatment. So tonight we're just giving information, we're here for support, but I have Dr. Sasha Espino with us. And I will say one thing, and this is all I'll say because I'm going to let her introduce herself. She is my breast surgeon, she's been with me for three years now going on four, we're going to claim four right now, <laughs> going on four, and she's just phenomenal. Even sometimes when I'm like, Dr. Spina, I got this, I got that, and she's like, this is going to be okay. <laughs> and I'm like, no, and she still has my back. She still makes a way for me to get the test that I need, just to err on the side of caution. So I thank her so much for everything she's done for me and my family, because she do it for me, she do it for my family, because I'm still here. And then also what she's doing for so many other people. But I'm going to let her share her story because this is about, just like breast cancer survivors, we have a story before breast cancer, and then the medical professionals, they have a story before they became medical professionals. So tonight, first and foremost, we want to hear who is Sasha Espino before doctor? Who is she? Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, everyone. <laughs> well, uh, I want to say thank you so much You're for having welcome. me here. I, I, I adore you. I... <laughs> admire you. I think Aww. you're such a strong woman. And I think this is a very difficult uh, topic and a very difficult thing for women or, and men to go through. And for somebody to have taken it and really taken control and let and be the one in control of this silly little stupid disease mm -hmm. is amazing. So I appreciate you being here for yourself, for your family, and for all these other women and men out there. Yes, because they get it too. Yeah, because... Um, <laughs> Without women like you, it is difficult to remind you all, we are talking about before, before the disease, right? Before the doctor. There is a whole life after mm -hmm. breast cancer, and, 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 it, and it should not define you. Right. And I think that's something that you have let it not do for you. You've not let it define you. You've really taken control of it, and I just mm -hmm. admire you. So I just wanted to put that out there. <laughs> um, Sansa Espino, who am I? I am... Um, <laughs> and, I, and I'm looking at my phone because I'm making sure you all don't have any questions. So yeah, I, a little bit. Well, I, I grew up in California. Um, my mom, I'm the oldest of seven, so it's a bunch of little kids hanging around uh, behind me. Um, <laughs> and I went to school thinking that I wanted to be a, med, a doctor, mm -hmm. and then I went to college, and then I realized I hated biology. <laughs> 
<laughs> so there's that. Um, I actually did a little consulting beforehand. So if you know if you know me at all, you know that I'm number one. It's all about my patients all the time. Absolutely. But then secondly, I do have a background of administration, of hospital administration, because the, one of the things that I think is really important as doctors is we appreciate the clinical aspect of things, mm-hmm. but we have to know that there is a business side of medicine. Right. And so you can't go crazy in terms of costs. The healthcare costs in the country are just astounding. And that's part of my background too, is just trying to figure out what's the best way to treat this patient clinically, but also making sure that the hospital right. is not gonna drown. Um, so that's that's another one of my passions. I went into surgery, into breast surgery specifically, because my mom was de- uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer my first year of medical school, mm-hmm. uh, which is oh, wow. it, yeah my first year before it even started actually. Um, and what I really regret, and she's doing okay now. She is hanging out with the grandkids all the time, not <laughs> me, uh, not my not my kids, <laughs> my kids <laughs> by the way. Uh, she. She was diagnosed with breast cancer, and the one thing that I really regret was that I wasn't there for her surgery. Your family was there, your daughter was there, your husband was there, I was not. I was all the way on the other side of the country, and I know it doesn't, like, she says it doesn't bother her, but it really bothered me. Um, And so I think I've taken that with me throughout medical school and residency, and that's Mm -hmm. kind of how I got into this. Besides the fact that I hate, I hate, hate breast cancer. I love women. And oh, yes, you do. I do, I do love women. She is truly a feminist. I'm such a feminist. That's ridiculous. Uh, anyone who wants to talk to me about anything outside of breast cancer, I'm all about it in terms of, like, you know, female power. Um, but uh, where was I? Um, so that's how I got into into breast surgery. And the other thing about breast surgery is that it's not just surgery. It's not just like a technical thing. It's a lot of art. Right. Oh, so, yes. And that I really appreciate. And I'm still learning. And as we mm-hmm. should all keep learning in our lives, I'm still learning how to make everything that I do better, prettier, more precise, everything. So okay. that was a whole lot about me. No, that was great because you kind of answered like two, three questions in one. Oh, so, yeah, because I had asked, did it have something to do with, you know, someone in your family yeah. having it? And like you stated also about having support. I even have my son and his children. Hi, sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah my son, Justice, he came um, all the way from California with his whole entire family, like the whole family. So my mom, my sister, it was just, yeah, it makes a difference, yeah. a huge difference. Um, let's see. So I have another question for you. What does, does breast cancer health mean? Like, what do you want people to know? Like about breast health, not necessarily breast cancer, but breast health. So breast health, we, we all have breasts starting, you know, in our puberty, men and women both. Um, breast health means just being on top of you and it doesn't right. necessarily mean cancer. It can mean a whole lot of mm-hmm. benign things that we're worried about, like nipple discharge or lumps or breast pain. So it's not, whenever we talk about breast health, it's not just about breast cancer. Um, it is about, there are a lot of other issues like big breasts, um, like I said, nipple discharge that patients see me about. Mm-hmm. So when I talk about breast health, it's about learning how, knowing what your breasts look like, whether they're big, small, what problems they're causing, what problems you're causing them, um, and learning to deal with it. So I'll take one, mm-hmm. just nipple discharge, for example. A lot of women worry about nipple discharge. Right. 
Um, as a surgeon, as a breast surgeon, I always think of a couple of things that kind of pique my interest when it comes to nipple discharge. It's bloody nipple discharge. Right. It is unilateral, meaning one breast versus both breasts, mm -hmm. um, and it's one duct. So mm -hmm. I, I wait. Can I show them that? Yeah, I'll get it for you. Okay. Okay. So I'm just going to do a really quick um, anatomy for the yep. for um, the people out there. So here is the breast, and when when we're talking about the breast, the breast is made up of these lobules and ducts. Lobules are shaped like grapes; they make the milk and ducts are shaped like straws, they bring the milk from the lobules to the nipple. And we've got about 20 plus lobules and ducts that go straight to the nipple. So when I'm talking about nipple discharge, usually cancer, which is you know the thing that makes me um, more cautious about things, mm -hmm. um, cancer usually happens in one duct. Mm -hmm. So if you've got discharge coming out from multiple ducts in the nipple, so if you're looking at your nipple and you're squeezing it, and you've got multiple discharge ducts coming from multiple ducts that have discharge, <laughs> right. that makes me scared a little bit less, only because cancer, again, usually only starts with one duct. Oh, okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. The other thing, too, is it's bloody nipple discharge that I really worry about, and bloody nipple discharge that is spontaneous. Spontaneous meaning you're not squeezing the nipple mm -hmm. to try to get blood out. I, in fact, I don't want you to squeeze a nipple. I don't want you to squeeze a nipple because if you squeeze a nipple, then it can cause trauma to the ducts. And then I wonder, hey, is it bleeding because there's trauma to the ducts or is it bleeding because there's a cancer there? Mm. So that's one aspect of breast health that I talk to patients about. Okay. I think breast pain is another one. Do you mind right. I just kind of talk about that too? Oh, yeah, breast pain breast and also inverted nipples. I have a question about that. Okay, so, well, let's go to the inverted nipples. Inverted nipples... If you've got inverted nipples, since we're talking about nipples anyway, mm -hmm. if you've got inverted nipples that have been there for years, not a problem. However, you're stare and this is this is why I really want you to know what you look like and know what you feel like, because I, if you notice that something changes, like from today to next month, then you need to tell me about it or you need to tell tell somebody about it. But if you've had inverted nipples, let's say since um, you were breastfeeding when you were 20, mm. and it's been 40 years or 20 years, and it hasn't changed, that's something that I typically don't worry about. Really? Okay. But if it's new, then that's something that we, again, start saying, hey, it's new. Right. Why is it happening? Okay. Um, again, unilateral versus bilateral, it's very unlikely. It's, uh, it's less common for cancers to happen in both breasts at the same time. Mm -hmm. So if there's a cancer that happens, or if there's a nipple inversion that happens in one breast mm -hmm. versus the other... I don't know. Something's not good. Um, <laughs> the plants. <laughs> um, then that makes me more worried. Um, I have a question about yeah. nipples. Okay, so you know my situation. The nipples were inverting mm -hmm. for years on and off. Mm -hmm. And I had a doctor say, oh, as long as they pop back out. And I'm like, what do you mean? And then it was like a little bit of discharge. Yeah. That wasn't, it may have been old blood, honestly, but it was, I was having to, but it wasn't all the time. None of it was all the time. Yeah. It was like, sporadic throughout yeah. years it was just interesting so it is so it can happen too so as we get older i'm not you're a baby but as we as we go from puberty to our 30s 50s our breast parenchyma changes so i showed you all those ducts right i showed you all those mm -hmm. um the lobules as we get older our breast that glandular it's called glandular tissue that glandular tissue starts to what we call atrophy meaning shrink oh, yeah. and it gets replaced by fat instead 
So as all those glandular tissues get smaller and smaller, there are ligaments, meaning think of it like cords in the breast that hold everything together. Mm -hmm. Those cords start to pull a little bit differently and okay. can sometimes invert your nipple. Oh, okay. So that's um, why sometimes they're not that alarmed yeah. if they see the invert. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, for us, it was a bit different story. Oh, yeah. That's our how I got was, you. Well, our <laughs> breasts were super busy. I, 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 not that oh, we, yeah. yeah. You can talk about my case. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> it's fine. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of reasons for inverted nipples to happen. But like I said, if something changes, if something's new, that is absolutely a reason to talk to your doctor about it and say, hey, this is something that I haven't noticed before, and I just want to make sure that there's nothing going on there. Right. Um, and you said pain. Pain, breast pain. A lot of patients come to me with breast pain, and they think, oh, my God, that means that it's a sign of cancer. Contrary to popular belief, breast pain is not typically a sign of cancer. Um Patients can have breast pain for multiple different reasons, whether it's um, hormones, whether we're going through menopause, um, let's say trauma to the breast that we don't know about. A lot of patients, interestingly, come into my office thinking they have breast pain. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of costochondritis? Well, you know that's what oh, you yeah. tried. Okay, sorry. God. Well, okay, have you guys heard of costochondritis? Costochondritis, cost, C-O-S-T, refers to... Ribs, cont, C-H-O-N-D-R, refers to cartilage, and itis is inflammation. So costochondritis is essentially inflammation of your ribs and your cartilage. Mm -hmm. um, and underneath each rib, we've got nerves running through. So there are nerves that run through here um, from the back all the way to the front. And each of those nerves shoot out, or each of those nerves shoot out a branch that goes to the, to the breast. And so when those ribs and cartilage are inflamed, that nerve can also get inflamed and you can feel a sharp shooting pain that goes to the breast. And patients, it's startling and it's very um, unnerv <laughs> unnerving. <laughs> it's very unnerving, but it's a very quick, sharp pain. And then it goes away, but it'll scare patients because they won't know what it is. Um, I'm not saying that's all the time, but patients do come right. to me thinking, what's going on? I'm having pain, and it's actually costochondritis because when I squeeze their breasts in the office, mm -hmm. it doesn't hurt, but when I press down on that rib cage, they jump off the table and I swear mm -hmm. one will punch me. Um, so there is absolutely breast pain. Breast pain happens for multiple different reasons, and again, that's another reason to talk to your daughter, doctor if you have an issue with breast pain. But you know, feel your breasts again, feel your breasts, feel your ribs. It's not just the ribs. It's not just the breasts that we're worried about here. It's the entire chest wall, mm. right? Mm. Um, so breast pain is something that is another part of breast health that we should be aware that it's not always cancer, um, but it's something that we can deal with. We can address. Some people think like fibrocystic tissue mm -hmm. and dense tissue, dense breast, excuse me, can that cause pain? Can either of those cause pain? Yes, absolutely. Again, I talked to you about those um, those cords, those right. ligaments. So if the cyst is growing, fibrocystic meaning you've got cysts in your breast tissue, which is not bad. We used to call it fibrocystic disease, but it implies yeah. that there's a disease, but it's not a disease. Because again, as we go through um, puberty to midlife to menopause, our hormones come down and hormones directly affect our breasts. So since there are less hormones, there's less of that glandular tissue, mm -hmm. and our breasts tend to develop more, become more cystic. Um, and so that's where a lot of the breast pain comes from as well. But it's not a disease, it's just normal progression of breast, mm -hmm. it's the normal evolution of breast tissue. Um, 
So yes, it can cause pain because as those cysts grow or get smaller, they can push against the breast tissue and pull against the cords, the, the ligaments. Okay. Um, so it can hurt. Uh, you know, a lot of patients come to me and say, hey, I, you know, I want to stop this pain. I'm going to cut down on my caffeine. And one of the things that we tell patients, I, told you that. I, I know, said, I think it was caffeine. Yeah, I know. But listen, yeah. I have breast pain and I love my caffeine so much. There is no way I'm going to stop my caffeine because we've had some evidence that shows caffeine decrease, no, cessation of caffeine, like completely cutting it out of your life may help with breast pain. It won't guarantee resolution of the breast pain. And I'm talking complete cessation, meaning no tea, no coffee, no decaf. No chocolate, mm-hmm. nothing like that. Okay. No sodas, no anything. Um, and I feel like if if you value caffeine, and I'm giving you a tiddly, like little evidence based thing that may or may not help, mm-hmm. that maybe it like may, may not even be worth it. Okay. I do have another question. I remember before 2015 when they found the calcifications prior to you, um, there was a pulsating vein. Mm-hmm. And I remember being able to see, like, a blue vein, and it was just pulsating, and then it was hot to touch. My breasts had increased. Can sometimes that be a sign, like the vein pulsate? Like, it was, like, leading to where the exact pain was in my breast. It was really weird. So I think you're probably having pain from the – I think you're probably having pain from the fact that there was an enlarged vein there. Um, I don't know if it was necessarily – It never happened but that one time. Oh. It was weird, but then it went away. Yeah, I continued to have pain, but it was a different type of pain. Yeah, but that particular day, like my breast was hot to touch, and you know, I went to the doctor, and that's when I got denied the ultrasound. Oh, but it yeah. was the calcifications, yeah. and there was dense tissue. Yeah, and he put in his report, I needed an ultrasound, but he denied me twice. But the doctor put in the order for it. I don't. This was not you. Yeah, yeah, this no, was no, no, no. I know. But it was just very interesting. Yeah, in 2019, it was the same calcifications. So to speak on that part, because you always talk about knowing your body and being a you know good advocate yeah. for yourself, can you speak a little bit about calcifications? If they see that on that yeah. report, so calcifications are calcium spots in the breast, and there are many many reasons why you might have calcium mm-hmm. spots in the breast. Um, they can look like big white blobs. They're not this big, but yeah, big, big white blobs <laughs> versus a tiny little squiggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can range, they can be caused by multiple things. Like I said, if you fall and hit your breast and there's trauma to the breast, there's calcifications that, there's calcium spots that can grow from oh, that trauma. Okay. On the complete other end of the spectrum, cancer can also cause calcifications. And so whenever we talk about calcifications in the breast, it doesn't always mean that it's bad. Right. It just means what type, that there are calcium spots in the breast. And what we've got to figure out is what type of calcium spots are they? Are they the big round ones? Because if they're the big round ones, we don't care about those. Right. But if they're in, usually we say heterogeneous, meaning they're different sizes, different shapes. Mm-hmm. They're micro calcifications, meaning mm-hmm. small, tiny little things. And if they're in a certain pattern in the mammogram that may be following a duct, remember we talked about ducts, right? So if it's following a duct, then you're thinking, hey, is there a cancer that's growing along that duct? Oh. So there are multiple things that we look at that radiology breast imagers look at when they're thinking, hey, is this um, suspicious or not? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what calcifications are. Again, not necessarily always bad. It just means that there is a thing there. Um, yeah. No. Is there anything else you want to share, though, about, like, breast health at all? Anything that they may need to know that 
has come about that it is like, oh, we need to pay attention more to that within ourselves? Well, for breast health, I mean, I, needless to say, suffice it to say that I shouldn't have to repeat this, but everyone at the age of 40 should absolutely be getting a screening mammogram every single year. And when I'm talking about a screening mammogram every year, there are multiple different guidelines out there, USPSTF, there's a ACS, there's a breast ASBRS, American Society of Breast Surgeons, American College of Radiologists. We all have different, differing guidelines. Um, well, not all of us, but there, there are some guidelines that say start at age 50 and do yeah. it every other year. That is not what you should be doing. Insurance companies will pay at 40 for free. You should be getting a free mammogram every year starting at 40, every single year. I don't care if your last mammogram is completely normal mm -hmm. and your breast exam hasn't changed at all. You should be doing it every single year because, like Christina, if you had not gotten your mammogram that year, those calcifications could have become worse the next year and the next year and the mm -hmm. next year. And even if we didn't feel anything, I know she was having pain, but if, if let's pretend we don't feel anything, you would think, hey, nothing's going on until this cancer was actually bigger than what it right. would have been if you had you been getting your mammograms every year. Right. Um, the, the, the thing when I'm talking to you about breast health and talking to you about what you should look for, I keep telling you, you know what you should look for. Well, how do you even examine yourself? Mm -hmm. Whenever I do my own breast exam, I'm standing in front of a mirror. I just, I'm not like jumping and bouncing anything. <laughs> I'm standing in front of a mirror, I'm standing in front of a mirror, I see, you know, what is normal for me. Is one nipple usually higher than the other? Is one breast bigger than the other? Is that new? Is that the same? Is it old? I should know that. Um, and then you bring your arms up, so if you bring your arms up, your breast should kind of follow as well, right? So let's say I do that, I bring my arms up, my breast follows, next month I do it again, and all of a sudden there's a little dimpling right here. And that didn't happen last month, like it's tethered to my chest wall, that should make me worried because that means that there may be a cancer that's tethering to that chest wall that's, that's preventing your breast tissue from going all the way up. So that's how I always start off my, and do not do it every month, I mean every day. Don't do an exam every day. I think that makes you a lot, uh, really anxious and then you also mm -hmm. might not be able to see differences, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I would do an exam once a month standing up, and then your actual breast exam when you're laying down, right arm up, examine with your left hand, examine the right breast, same thing, left arm up, examine with your right hand, your left breast. Um, it doesn't matter if you go up and down, left and right, I just need you to make sure that you examine the same breast, uh, the, the entire breast the same way every single time. Because if you don't um, examine it the same way every single time, you might miss something. Mm, um, yeah. So that's one of the key things. So whenever I do breast exams on women, it's always the same way. Like, let's go ahead. <laughs> this is a non-nippled move. Yeah, just um, in case. So <laughs> me, you want to kick us off? Excuse me. Yeah. So yeah. I always go from the top down. So I'm always with, I guess, you, with one hand, right? Because we're doing just feel with three fingers. Feel all the way down, and I do it in a radial fashion. So 12 o'clock, we look at the breast like a clock. So 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 11. So it's just seeing, is there anything new? Is mm -hmm. there anything new? During this exam, I never squeeze my nipples. I do not, again, because I don't want us to cause any trauma to it. Okay. Yeah. So the other question, kind of going back, you did say, okay, so you talked about the exam, but it was something that she stated, and I was like, darn it, I need to ask her about that. Um, mm -mm. Okay, you were talking about getting tested every, uh, after 40, every year. Every year. However, mm -hmm. if someone 
has family history. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. Even if it's a male, because I want to talk to the males too, just elaborate on that as far as yeah. genetics. So we said every year, starting at the age of 40, yes, that's assuming you have no other risk factors that are increasing your risk for breast cancer. Mm -hmm. However, my mom had breast cancer, uh, my cousin had breast cancer, I am higher risk. And what do we mean by higher risk? Higher risk means the average risk for the average woman is about 12%, meaning one in every eight, which is a ridiculous number, but one in every eight women will get breast cancer. That is a very common breast, uh, that is a very common cancer. So about 12%, uh, your average risk for the average woman walking around is 12%. High risk for developing breast cancer is anything 20% or higher. And we use this calculator, multiple calculators exist out there. There's a Gale calculator, a Tyracusa calculator. It takes into account all your family history, your personal history. If that calculator spits out a number that says your risk for developing breast cancer is 20, 20 to 25% or higher, mm -hmm. that means that you are at higher risk, or at high, we, call, we use the word high, mm -hmm. risk for developing breast cancer. I tell patients, I see patients all the time with high risk for breast cancer, I tell them they do not necessarily mean that they're going to get breast cancer. Okay. It just means they're at higher risk, which means, yes, if you're 35, 30, or something like that, right. and you start getting your mammograms, you start getting MRIs. Um, for those who don't know what an, a breast MRI is, um, mammograms are not bad. They're not uh, bad. I think they're... Is everybody getting 2D or 3D? Is they should be. Standard care right? should be 3D, okay. by the way. Standard care should absolutely be 3D. Um, and we're going to go on a little digression, but 3, okay. 2D means we squish you one way and you see my breast this way, and we squish you another way and we see my breast this way. That's it. Two pictures. 3D is essentially like thousands of slices going this way. So it's okay. literally squishing you so many times, it, even though it just squishes you once. Um, but 3D is what you should absolutely be getting. And if you're not getting 3D, you should be looking for a place that does give you 3D because that is what we consider standard of care now. Good. Um, so again, if you're high risk for developing breast cancer, you get your mammograms earlier than 40, and it depends on your earliest cancer in the family. Um, and then also MRIs. MRIs are not bad. They're kind of annoying and, mm -hmm. yeah. So, <laughs> so you're on your belly, your arms are up like this, and your breasts are hanging through these two little holes, and you're listening to a pounding for about 30 to 40 yeah. minutes. Not bad. I fell asleep. <laughs> but I'm also kind of tired all the time. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's, but, but the reason I talk to patients who are at high risk for breast cancer to get MRIs is because that mammogram, that 3D mammogram, even as good as it is, can still miss things mm -hmm. in dense breasts, and we'll talk about density in a bit, but um, that MRI will literally be able to walk through your dense breasts okay, um, and catch things that a mammogram would not. Even things that aren't cancer. Even even <laughs> things that are not cancer. Very, no, it's a very important point yeah. because they're very sensitive, meaning it'll catch a lot of things, and we're so happy that it does because it does catch things. Mm -hmm that the mammogram missed, but it also means that sometimes patients are put in a position where they're so anxious because now they've got an MRI biopsy that needs to happen, and ultimately that MRI biopsy is negative, but still we put you through that little scare. And it's un unfortunate, and I hate that, but I think from our standpoint, if a patient is high risk, we'd rather be safe than sorry. Yeah, and that scare, which I'll talk on another episode, but that scare, I think I did last time a little bit, um, it's very, it can be 
very crippling mentally, um, 100%, because you don't know what you're looking at. You don't know. Um, I just had a scare to me because of what was happening to yeah. the radiologist. And that was scary because you don't know. Uh, you're just trying to do the best you can to live. But if you've already had breast cancer, it's like, oh, my God, what is this? Like something else then came back or a different cancer came back. So when you were talking about as far as genetics. Oh, yeah. Sorry. The other thing. Um, no, that's fine. Um, the other part of that. So you have a person. They know they have a family history. But say, like with me, I didn't have a family history. And I was 44. And you did suggest, well, no, you gave me a genetic test. You were like, yeah, you, you know, mm-hmm. you explained it all to me. You always let me make my own choices, which I appreciate. But you, because there's no family history yeah. that we knew of. So depending, does that have, as far as genetic testing, and there's no family history, at any age can you have that genetic testing? How do you feel about that? Feel or can you give me some scientific information? No, so uh, the NCCN guidelines, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines, say that mm-hmm. anyone that genetic testing should be re- re- uh, recommended to patients who are 50 years old or younger who've been diagnosed with breast cancer um, and then certain other cancers that are 60 years old or younger. But anyways, um, the NCCN guidelines is kind of what the insurance companies will follow. Oh, so it's an insurance thing. Yes. The ah. American Society of Breast Surgeons, which of course I ascribe to, subscribe to, is um, we say that any new diagnosis of breast cancer should be offered genetic testing because, mm-hmm. again, it, is there family history that we don't know about? Like A lot of our families don't talk about cancers, right. right? So maybe there's been a lot of cancers and nobody talks about it. So there is a mutation, a DNA uh, hereditary cancer that's getting passed down through the family that caused this cancer to happen. But as as far as a 44-year-old getting diagnosed with breast cancer, you're younger than 50, you should be offered genetic testing. You can absolutely say no, but it makes me, it, it, it makes me, it piques my interest whenever there's somebody who's younger than 50 because breast cancer should theoretically really not hit somebody younger than 50. Um, because the older the older we get, the higher our risk for developing breast cancer, and the reason is our breast our body just doesn't. Let me backtrack. Cancer happens because there's a mistake in our body that usually our body will fix, and then the cancer goes away, or the cancer doesn't become a cancer. Um, as we get older, our bodies are less good at fixing things, like my knee. My knee hurts all the time now, and it didn't when I was 20 because my body just isn't really good at making it not hurt anymore. Mm-hmm. So as we're older, 60, 70, 80 years old, our bodies make mistakes and our bodies just don't fix it. And that's why our we're higher likelihood of de- developing breast cancer as we get older. So somebody who's 44 or younger or 50 or younger who gets breast cancer, that's when we say absolutely get genetic testing if you want it. Um, mm-hmm. But we, as a part of the American Society of Breast Surgeons, I always talk about genetic testing to all patients. So if you have a family history of, of cancer, not just breast, not just oh, breast. that's a good point. I'm not talking just breast cancers because there can be ovarian cancers, pancreatic cancers um, that you have family history of, and that there may be a gene. If anyone's heard of the BRCA2 gene, BRCA2, yeah. BRCA gene increases your risk of breast, ovarian, pancreatic, prostate cancer, male breast cancer. So if you have a family history, I know I'm thinking of one patient specifically who had just a grandma with pancreatic cancer, um, and that's all she knew. And then she was younger as well, so we tested her, and she ended up having a BRCA2 mutation. Um, so it's not just breast cancer family history, it's all the other cancers that we need to take 
uh, take into account. So again, if you've got a family history for cancer and you are off for genetic testing or if you have a genetic mutation, then your mammograms and MRIs definitely get done much earlier than what we just talked about, 40 years old and older. Okay, because there was a question, are you actually much higher risk or just slightly if your mom had breast cancer and doesn't have the gene that passes it on? So it's great that your mom has a gene, does not have a gene that, that was bad, but here's a little other caveat too. Genetic testing, like I said, I'm always trying to get better, right? We're always trying to get better, and the science is always trying to get better, too. So if your mom got tested, if let's pretend your mom is 60 years old and she got tested at, I don't know, 20 years ago. Say if she's in her 40s. Yeah, so if mom was in her 40s, got tested in her 40s, imagine all the genes we've discovered since then, right? So mom mm -hmm. probably got genetic testing with BRCA1 and 2, and that was it. But now we've got a slew of other genes that we know about that we test patients for. And it's not just all these other genes, it's even BRCA1 and 2, we know so much more about those genes that you should ask mom, hey, should you get tested again? Because maybe they didn't test you for something before that exists now, that we know about now. Or as a patient, should you talk to your provider about getting tested? That's what I was about to ask you, yeah. because even though it's 2019, has things changed since 2019? Because okay, I think I had like, I, you did BRCA1 and BRCA2, right? And there were other, yeah, it's a total, uh, it's a breast ovarian. Gun. I don't know what else you did. Yeah. I think, it was, <laughs> I think it was those two. <laughs> Just let me do whatever. So with that being said, so 2019 from now, I, I'm good. It has not really changed in the last three years. Mm -hmm. um, we usually say five to 10 years or older, we would recommend doing it. I mean, even in 2000, when I finished fellowship from Northwestern, I think there are still new genes that we talk about now. And even the genes that we know of, are they worse or are they less worse um, okay. than we thought? So it's it's always good to keep up with that and at least talk to your provider, your surgeon, your primary care physician, whoever it might be. So what if you're a person who's older, like 70-some years old, 80-some years old, you just found out you have breast cancer. I heard you say that that's more normal time when Yeah, it's a less, kinda, it's, it's or, less surprising. But what if there's no family history, but you're still concerned about maybe your grandkids and your I, children, would you still, is that still an option? I would absolutely still talk to the patient about doing it. Okay. Whether or not insurance is going to cover it yeah. is a different story. However, I think Medicare is pretty... Medicare. Um, Medicare, if you're 70-something, right? You're, right. We've got Medicare. I think they're pretty friendly with doing genetic testing. Okay. I think we, we're probably moving into um, a world where we're not, we're not going to be chained by insurance so much with it when it comes to genetic testing. Mm. Okay. Because there's so much prevention that can come out of it that we can ultimately, right, insurance companies, all they want to do is save healthcare money, theoretically. Even though, Anyways. Um, <laughs> Um, there's a lot of prevention that can come out of it. So if let's pretend I get diagnosed or I, I, I'm found to have a BRCA1 mutation that increases my risk of breast cancer all the way up to 80% mm -hmm. and ovarian cancer, then I would rather remove my breast today than get breast cancer tomorrow and have to spend all that money on chemotherapy, radiation, all that stuff, um, and remove my ovaries today instead of getting ovarian cancer tomorrow and have to go through all that. So right. theoretically, insurance should be following suit. I just, it's just how quickly and, or slowly they're going to be doing it. Okay, so someone said, my genetic counselor told me to request to be retested every five years, which I think you just talked about this. Does this seem reasonable? Absolutely. Oh, this absolutely. person did have, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, great. But, so, oh, oh, sorry. Here's the thing, too. Um, even if you are negative for a genetic mutation, 
um, and you still have family history. So I'll pretend mom and mom's sister and mom's mom all had cancer, but everyone's gotten tested and is negative. You should breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief, but you should still consider you should still consider yourself at higher risk than somebody without the family history okay. because again, we don't know everything out there, mm-hmm. right? So we might have a thing that's not discovered yet that exists, but we just don't know. Okay. So just because genetic testing is negative, which is great, you know, at least there's not any known things, I wouldn't never get a mammogram or an MRI. Mm-hmm. That's good. Question for you. Now we can move to breast cancer. Um, and basically, I just kind of want you to just talk about some things you want people to know about the actual disease itself. Like give us pretty much, which you kind of pretty much already did, but just kind of tell us a little bit about breast cancer. Then I have some specific questions because I just thought of one. <laughs> so breast cancer is a pain, right? It's terrible. <laughs> Uh, you like the gone. stages and stuff. Like okay. Stuff like so breast cancer, whenever um, I talk to patients about breast cancer, I do explain that anatomy first so you can get an idea of how this cancer develops. There are, the majority of breast cancers are, if you've heard of IDC, invasive ductal cancer, the majority of invasive cancers are IDCs. Invasive meaning it's broken through and wants to spread. D stands for ductal, meaning it's from those ducts that I showed you, and C, carcinoma is cancer. Um, that's the majority of cancers. Uh, there are other multiple different kinds of cancers that we talk about, and we treat relatively the same, but from an anatomic, looking at a, a slide on, under a microscope, we say, where did this cancer come from? Did it come mm-hmm. from the ducts, or did it come from the lo- 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 lobules? Um, if you've heard of grade or stage, grade and stage are different. Grade is how fast these cancers grow. There are three grades, one, two, and three. One is slow, two is average growing, three is fast, and that's something to pay attention to when it comes to your diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Your Mac's gonna go to sleep. Oh, is it? Oh, it's gonna die. Oh, go ahead, keep on talking. Um, <laughs> um, there is stage, if anyone's heard of stage, there are four stages. One is small, that means the cancer is small, and four means that it's somewhere else in the body besides the breast. And we, of course, this is the reason that we want you to get mammograms every single year, because we want you to catch you at a stage one, or even lower than that, before we start getting a stage two or three. So remember I said, what if you have a normal mammogram today, and two years from now, because you haven't, because you had a normal mammogram, um, you, all of a sudden you haven't gotten your mammograms in the last couple of years and then now you feel something funny, you could have been diagnosed initially at a stage one where now we're a stage three. And the treatment is significantly different and your survival is significantly different. So that's why we're asking patients to get mammograms every single year. There's also stage zero, mm-hmm. which means, remember I said invasive. Invasive cancer is the one that kind of breaks out and wants to go somewhere else. It wants to go to your lymph nodes, it wants to go somewhere else in your body. Stage zero is a kind of cancer that is has not broken out through those ducts and it actually just stays within the breast. So if it keeps growing, theoretically, it just stays within the breast. So yes, I say, I say stage one through four, but there is a stage zero where we still treat it as cancer, um, but it's so early that you've caught it that we don't have to worry about it having gone anywhere else. Right. Um, I'm gonna touch a little bit on markers. Mm-hmm. And, and this is really confusing for a lot of people who don't have a, a 
picture in front of them. But whenever we look at one individual cell for a cancer, um, think of that cell as an apple. Apples have stems. Um, there are three different stems that we look for on these cancer cells. One is called ER, meaning estrogen receptor, PR, progesterone receptor, and HER2, which is an antibody. ER and PR, estrogen and progesterone receptors, if those are positive, if your cancer cell, if your little apple has those two stems, that means the cancer likes estrogen and progesterone, and we can give you additional things in the future to make sure this cancer doesn't come back, like a pill. Then if you heard of a tamoxifen, which you never had to because you Not did a double mastectomy, um, lots of details there that I'm not going to go into now because <laughs> yeah. um, there, there is a lot of information right. as to why she did not need to take the tamoxifen. Um, but if you have uh, those stems on your apple, then that means that that is an extra weapon that I can give you, which is an anti-estrogen pill, again, to make sure this cancer doesn't come back in the future. Um, HER2 is uh, that third stem that we look for. HER2 we used to be really afraid of because we, it, it, it indicated mm, yeah. a, a really aggressive cancer. And we're much less afraid of it now than we used to because we found a, a, a medicine, Herceptin, Trastuzumab, or Pertuzumab, um, that, we, that actually targets that HER2 specifically and literally will help melt it, make it go away. The trick about Herceptin is that it, it, it works well, but it works well when given with chemo. So whenever mm -hmm. patients have that HER2, I almost automatically talk to them about chemotherapy. Um, so that's those three things. So the other scary one that I think patients hear about and kind of go down a rabbit hole when they Google it is triple negative breast cancer. Have you heard of triple negative yes. breast cancer? But one question. Mm -hmm. So there's a HER2 positive. Is there a HER2 negative? Yeah. So And the difference? If I would ever choose to have a breast cancer... And I'm looking at these three markers is what we call them, two more markers. I would choose to have an ER, PR positive, and a HER2 negative breast cancer. That HER2 negative means I'm not automatically talked to about chemotherapy. Mm. And that ER, PR positive means that I have that additional pill that I can use as a life insurance later on. Okay. And that pill, it's annoying. It's every day for about five to ten years. And it's a tiny little pill, and some patients don't have any. So they get sick off of it. I know. Some patients don't have any side effects, other patients do. Think of, it's an anti-estrogen pill. Mm -hmm. But estrogen is beautiful. It is a beautiful hormone that helps so many things in our body. It helps us with um, bone strengthening. It helps us with thermoregulation. So patients who take this anti-estrogen pill complain about hot flashes. Mm. It helps with cholesterol metabolism. So it can help, it can make us gain weight if okay. we're not careful. It causes, sometimes patients say that they have hair thinning. I think one of the things that we really don't talk about enough in breast health is vaginal health. Yeah. So think of estrogen, right? Like think of estrogen as a, a hormone that really helps with vaginal lubrication. Mm -hmm. If I give you an anti-estrogen pill, that means that your vaginal lubrication might be significantly less. So that's another thing that patients have to talk to me about if they're having um, side effects from pills. Um, so yes, there's a HER2 positive and there's a HER2 negative. If you've heard of triple negative, that means all three, ERPR, HER2, are negative. Mm -hmm. I just told you the great things about ER and PR, right? Like if you're ERPR positive, that means I can give you a pill. Right. If you're HER2 positive, yeah, that sucks, but at least I can give you Herceptin with right. chemo, yes. Triple negative, 
what's the pill going to do? It's going to do nothing. It, you know, your body's not going to care about it because there is no receptor for that estrogen mm-hmm. pill to block, uh, to hold on to. And that HER2 drug is also not going to do anything because there's nothing for it to um, uh, hold on to. So for triple negative cancers, we almost always talk about chemotherapy. The really nice thing, though, is there's this new drug. It's called immunotherapy, if you've heard of it. I've heard of it. Immunotherapy, and i got to tell you, this is really, I think, really going to change the landscape for cancers. It's changed the landscape for lung cancers. Keytruda, um, pebrolizumab is the name of it. Keytruda is a drug that we've started giving certain triple negative cancers, um, and it is an immunotherapy drug that has helped reduce the risk of recurrence and potentially increase overall survival for uh, breast triple negative oh, wow. breast cancers. So whereas all we had before was just chemo, we've right. got immunotherapy now that could really make a difference. Okay. Which I think is awesome. So immunotherapy, I know they have their port mm-hmm. if they're taking chemo a lot of times. Um, so immunotherapy, does it go through the port? Do they get injections? How's that one? Yes. Yes, it goes through the port. No, someone said something about injections before. What what are they? There are other kinds of injections. So if you've got, there's so many, and and this is why I'm really good at surgery, but I'm really bad at medical oncology. I'm really bad at chemo. So I'm so sorry. (laughs) Yeah, so we're not going to go too deep. I am so sorry if you have all these surgeons. Yes, Um, but no, there's a lot of a lot of pills, a lot of injections, um, a lot of uh, intravenous um, injections that you can also get. So pills, let's say somebody who's an ER positive metastatic, anyways, they, they combine certain things. Like you can get a pill and an injection in your muscle. You can get the injection in your muscle and IV stuff. Mm. Um, so it just depends on the kind of medicine that you're getting. You're going to have to help me find an oncologist to come out and talk about that. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. That'll be great. Um, so the other thing about, so if someone has cancer, so what questions do you think a newly diagnosed patient should ask or information that they should make for sure their surgeon's telling them before they move on to the next step? Because you're the first person that we see, yeah. from my understanding. Um, we see you, and then we may have to see the oncologist or may not. So what are some things that, because I know you brought me in, you set me at the table. You're, it was a different office then, but it was a table, and I remember the very first words you said was, this is your journey use whatever faith or whatever you believe in. It was just very emotional. And hopefully I'll start crying. I know I cry all the time. But <laughs> but you made me feel protected in the sense of, yeah, you did. You you let me know it's my choice. That was that feminist coming out. But it was okay. <laughs> I needed it. Um, and you gave me a pink binder, mm-hmm. which I've told some people about having a binder because yeah. they get so much information. I thought that was good. But... Truthfully, I felt you gave me a lot of information. Now, I did have my, my family with me, and some people do have to go alone. Um, but what are some things that's like, okay, before you leave that appointment, you should know blah, blah, blah. Could yeah. you enlighten them about some things they should make for sure they know after that? So before you even go to that appointment, I think it's really important. Christina mentioned that she had her family there. If you can have a second set of ears, and it's not always possible for everyone, but if you can have a second set of ears... Um, or even ask your surgeon or whoever it might be to record the conversation. Was, I've been telling people. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, because you hear cancer, right? And when you hear the word cancer, it, everything just goes away. And as much as you think you're paying attention, you're not going to remember a lot. And you're, you shouldn't have to try to remember a lot because you need to process this in your own speed. Um, so 
before you even go to your appointment, I would absolutely make sure to A, bring your phone or bring family members because you need a second set of ears to be able to ask the questions that you may or may not know to ask. Um, when you're there, it is very important to pay attention to the surgeon. I would err actually on the side of the patient not writing, writing things down because it. I think it detracts from you hearing what the surgeon is trying to tell you. And I'm trying to tell you things, and I'm not. I, I try not to be super medical about it. Um, I try to help explain it to the patient, but I. But it. I think it makes it hard for the patient to take in what I'm saying when they're writing down things. So that's why that second set of ears is there. Before you leave that appointment, I think it's really important to one know what your next step is, right? Because I think when you again when we get diagnosed, we're all our control, our, our sense of control has completely gone out the window because this is not something, this is really important actually. Can, breast cancer is not something that you have done to yourself. It is not because you have eaten sugar. Drank, nothing sugar. It is not Please. because you ate a ton of sugar or you're diabetic or I, I can't remember all that. Right. Of course sugar, eat too we much. We worry about, yeah, we worry, you know, old wives scale. That's a complete old wives People say that it feeds cancer. It's it feeds cancer. That's, it is not. It does not feed cancer, by the way. Okay, so let me, let me, I'll touch on that again. But, um, <laughs> you were talking about, um, basically what the patient Oh, yeah, say. the yeah. cancer. The cancer, cancer is not caused by you, okay? Yeah. It just happened in your body, and your body just did something. And so when you're told that you have <laughs> breast cancer, you're all of a sudden out of control. What I need you to know is stay back, stay, keep, keep that control back, get that control back, which means, one, knowing what your next step is. Meaning, is it a next MRI? Is it genetic testing? Is it meeting with a medical oncologist? I need you to know that you need to write down, or the, her, your person, or at least at the end of this all, have a checklist of what your next step is. So what's your plan? That will help you stay in control. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is really hard for us to remember as patients is, this is this should not, and I said this at the very beginning of this conversation, this should not define you. And it's hard to think about it at the time, but you've got to remember that there is going to be a life after breast cancer. Yes, this is a journey that you're absolutely going to need to go through, and it's not going to be the easiest of journeys, and it's going to be different for everyone. But there is a life that you're going to get back to later on, whether it's your life that you're living right now or a new normal. You've got to get back to that. Um, so again, plan. What is the next step? Do you need to do, you need to do additional imaging? That's one question. Mm -hmm. um, do you need to do genetic testing? Genetic testing, again, we've talked a lot about already. Is it because you have family history? Is it because you're young? Or is it because you're 77 years old and have two grandkids that you're worried about? You should get genetic testing if that is something that you want. Um, one of the things, before I forget, insurance, I would talk mm -hmm. to your doctor and see, We you know, we don't really get trained about like insurance and payments and stuff, but I think for all of us, we should know the basics of what our insurance should be covering. So one thing that I'm putting it out there for patients, and it, it all depends on your insurance company, but in 1998, the Women's Health and Cancer Rights Act, the WHCRA of 1998, also called Janet's Law, I think? Yeah, I think so. Janet's Law um, was passed that mandated that patients who underwent mastectomies, insurance companies have to cover reconstruction. Mm. That doesn't mean that all insurance companies actually cover mastectomies. Isn't that ridiculous? Yeah. Not all companies yeah. are 
required to cover mastectomies, which is dumb. But if your insurance company covers a mastectomy, it also needs to cover the reconstruction for it. The reconstruction meaning one breast, both breasts, mm -hmm. okay? It also, not just for mastectomies, but I found that it also, a lot of insurance companies will um, cover a lumpectomy on one, because I take care of a lot of big-breasted women, a lot of companies will cover an uh, uh, lumpectomy on this one side and a symmetrizing procedure, a reduction right. on the other side. So I want you to know that all these options exist, but that's another question to have for your doctor. What's your plan? Imaging, genetic testing, um, medical oncologist. What's your surgical plan and how will it, what's your recovery gonna be like? Um, and post-op care, it may be a little premature to start talking about post-op stuff and what, you know, what the later on things are, but I think it's good for you to know, hey, will I eventually need mm -hmm. to meet with radiation oncology? Will I eventually need to meet with a chemo doctor? Just to, again, keep your control back in line. Question for you as far as all of this. Number one, D-flap, you know they're trying to get rid of that for insurance. Yes. Yeah, the D-flap they're trying to totally get yeah, rid of. That's being an option, but that's a whole other story. But you reminded me of it when you said that about the bill, because yeah. it's supposed to protect us to have some type of normalcy yeah. back to where we want to be if we wanted some form of a mound or breast or whatever. But I just want to put that out there for anyone who's trying to get a deep flap, really check your insurance company because they're trying to make some changes. The other thing was, I think this is so important because I remember when I was going through everything and I was worried about survival, survival, what's the, what's the time, you know, what's my survival rate? Then my husband asked a good question, which was, what's her reoccurrence? Which I was like, thank God you're here because I didn't have that in my brain. <laughs> I was thinking about dying. So I was yeah. just like, you know, I want, because when we think of cancer in society, I think we think of stage four and that's it. Yeah. We don't think of zero to three. or yeah. And then you got the A's and the B's in between there. We don't think of any of that. We just think of, I, like I tell everybody. I'm so happy how educated you are. <laughs> that is just makes me so happy. I had to because. be because I wanted to know what yeah. was going on. And speaking of that, some doctors, you know, they, they give a definition, but not give the actual word. Like, for uh, instance, you remember one time I had a heteroma. Uh -huh. And I was like, you you look kind of shocked when you look at the ultrasound. I just want to say that. But yeah, it, looked, it was the fluid, you know. Yeah. And so I was like, is that seroma? And you were like, yeah. But I think with some physician, I've heard some women talk about how sometimes their physician, they don't give them, they'll know the meaning of something, but don't have the actual word of it. So they may say, oh, that's a fluid-filled thing but not say this is aroma. So if they hear it again, just to give them that information yeah. of, like I have plenty of people asking, what's the difference between a mass and a lesion? And this, that, and a third. So I think it's really important as yeah. we advocate, ask those questions, like what does that mean? If they're given a description or if they're given a word, explain it a little bit more, they will. Um, but getting back to recurrence and survival. If you look on the internet, mm -hmm. survival across the board, because they put everybody seems like in one category, yeah. they'll say five years. So all of us are like, oh, let's get to that five-year mark. And I'm just telling you what's yeah. going on in yeah. our yeah. <laughs> So we're like, we don't care if we got stage zero to four. It's like, what is, but anywhere on the internet. Now, if you go deeper and start looking at the various cancers, you realize there's a difference in percentage. Yes. But they put, all, which if you read a little bit deeper, it says kind of like they give all everyone the five-year mark because they just kind of put everybody in a smorgasbord. But can you elaborate about, the question of survival versus recurrence, like what the difference is. And we say five-year survival because it's just a, a benchmark that we go to. And then seven-year survival and 10-year survival. So 
when we talk about survivals, it's just, it's a marker for us to determine how effective our treatment is. Um, so when we're comparing a five-year survival for a patient who's, it's easier for us to talk about survival when we're, to compare stages when we're able to compare it at a certain mm -hmm. like block of time. So I'm not saying that cancer patients should always look to five years because that's a really long time. Right. Um, and I don't want you to think you're gonna, you know, perish before then, but it's just, just for you all to know that it's just a, a benchmark that we use. Um, but with regard to survival versus recurrence, there absolutely is a difference. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I draw this out for patients. Yeah, you do very good artwork. <laughs> <laughs> I draw this out for patients as much as I can. Um, survival, like you said, is very different for the type of cancer you have and for the stage of cancer you have. I did talk about that ERPR positive, HER2 positive or negative, and then triple negative. When we're talking about all these cancers, there are certain kinds of cancers that have a lower survival at five years than an ERPR positive cancer. Um, so survival, again, is very different depending on the stage and depending on the type of cancer, breast cancer that it is. My goal is to get whoever out there is listening to live as long as possible. So whenever I talk to patients about my surgical plan, um, I always talk to them about what is going to help them live the longest. So whenever I talk to surgery to patients about surgeries, you know, this is I'm a surgeon, so I'm biased with regard to what I talk about. I talk about mastectomies or lumpectomies. Mm -hmm. Mastectomies removing the entire breast. Don't take the nipple off. Removing the entire breast or just removing the lump, lumpectomy. Ectomy means to remove, so lumpectomy means to remove the lump. Mast refers to the breast. Mastectomy means to remove the entire breast. For the majority of cases, the majority, not saying everything, because there are certain kinds of cancers that do not fall into this category or into this spiel. Uh, for the majority of cases, mastectomy and lumpectomy, survival is the same, mm -hmm. meaning for the given the same stage, right? If we're talking about a stage one ERPR positive HER2 negative cancer that's two centimeters in size, if I remove your breast or if I remove just that lump, your survival is gonna be the same. When we talk about recurrence, we're talking specifically about IBTR, in breast tumor recurrence. In my breast, the tumor recurring. Um, so there's two different types of recurrences. One is in breast and one is distant recurrence. Distant recurrence means stage four, we talked about that earlier. In breast is what I really think about when I'm first talking to patients about the surgery. There is a difference between mastectomy and lumpectomy when it comes to in breast tumor recurrence. If I remove your entire breast, that risk is close to zero, but not quite zero. It's about two to 5%. If I remove just that lump, that risk is significantly higher. It can be up to 30%. And then hopefully the majority of you are like, whoa, 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 why is that so high? Um, it's so high because let me tell you what our goal is when we treat cancers surgically. When I remove your breast, I'm treating the entire breast, correct? Mm -hmm. I'm treating the cancer and the rest of the breast. And so your recurrence rate, the risk of it coming back in the breast is very low because the majority of your breast is gone. But if I remove just that lump and don't treat the rest of your breast, that means there's still a rest of the sorry no it's okay there's still a rest of the breast for that cancer to come back and so when we talk about in breast tumor recurrence we talk about lumpectomies needing radiation to bring that 30% down to 
15 percent is that where you're getting it yep because literally i did not think of that question and i think for a lot of patients they're not yeah because when she talked to me on the phone about what i had i didn't hear her nothing about stage zero i did hear her say oh it's the best cancer you can have, which I was like, no, no cancer is the best um, cancer. It was not Miss. It was not Doctor Spina. It was somebody else. Uh, <laughs> but it was like all I heard the radiologist. Yes. Let me make that clear. The radiologist say was, is the you know, it's ductal carcinoma side two. All I heard was carcinoma, and because I used to work in the medical field, I knew instantly that was cancer, and that's all I heard until you all brought me into consultation and then broke it down. But the, even then, you're still thinking. Because what a lot of people don't know, which I definitely want her to touch a little bit about the implants and stuff, and it's a little 801, but um, what a lot of people don't realize is that after you get the biopsy done and everything, you have the pathology report, but you haven't done the other surgery, like the lumpectomy or the mastectomy. So my question for Dr. Spino was, okay, I know that in those areas, this is what I have, but is there a chance that I could have something nearby that's invasive and her answer was just what she's doing right here <laughs> it was like yes yeah, she could so i was thankful she told me that because i had an idea anyway because when they do a biopsy it's very precise to that yeah. area it's not the whole breast it's not even to get a clear margin yeah i don't want to over no no, no no that's right i mean if you think a biopsy a biopsy is a needle right if your tumor is three centimeters in size that tumor that needle is teeny tiny and it's just going to skim part of that 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 tumor that mass, um, so it's not necessarily the total truth of the of the cancer. So um, it's important to know. And we talked about you know doing any potential additional imaging when you're talking to your surgeon. What's what other things are we going to make sure to do to make sure that there's nothing else that we're missing? Right. And before we end, because I'm obviously hopefully bring you back. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I really want to talk about like sex and stuff because yeah. you know all that can. We should. People don't talk about it, yeah. especially after double mastectomy. So two things I want you to go over. And the reason I'm having to go over two things that happened to me is because a lot of people don't know about this. Every time I do interviews, they're like, what are those things? I never heard of a breast, breast implant illness. I never heard of caps or contractor. And it's not to say that breast implants is a bad thing. It's just for me, it didn't work out. <laughs> so I just, I definitely want to make it, make that clear. We're not bashing anyone who has implants or anyone who's even deciding to get them. It's just something that needs to be heard because a lot of people are, you know, saying that they have all these symptoms and they're not being taken seriously. So whenever we talk about mastectomies or even lumpectomies where, um, where your breast is already really small and you just want a, a breast implant to augment whatever it looks like. Um, which again, insurance should theoretically pay for. Whenever we talk about reconstruction for mastectomies or partial mastectomies, we talk about two different types of mastectomies. There's an implant reconstruction, and then Christina was talking about deep reconstruction. Um, there's a uh, the autologous reconstruction. Autologous reconstruction means removing tissue from your own body, whether it's your belly or your back or your butt or your thighs, and moving it up to create this mound. Um, I do implant reconstructions. I, there are microsurgery trained plastic surgeons who do specifically like removing tissue from the mm -hmm. belly and really literally taking it off your body and then putting it back on and sewing. And not for me. So details. Uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, so there are there should be two different options that your surgeon should talk to you about, or if you don't, they don't talk to you about it, at least ask. And that's the other thing. I, I, I'm not saying this to. Um, 
I'm saying this because I want everyone to talk about it at their appointment because there are some surgeons that I know um, who may not be in the cities who don't talk to patients about reconstruction and it hurts my heart. I want patients everywhere to know that you should ask about reconstruction even if you don't want to necessarily do it. I want you to know what your options are. So before you leave that yes. office, you need to ask them, hey, if I do go with a mastectomy, what are my options for a reconstruction? Okay, I'll leave it at that. I'm glad you said that. I'm sorry no, because there's some, I get a lot of complaints from people who say that they weren't even offered the option of going flat. That's really true too. Yeah, especially aesthetic flat clothing. Yeah. Which you can get into, but I didn't mean cut you off, but I didn't. No, um, yeah, so no matter what surgery you do, you need to, you Options. need to know, you need to, when, before you even make your decision as to what kind of surgery that you want to do, you need to look in the mirror and think about what you want to see when you're waking up every morning. What do you want to look at? What do you, what do you want to see five years, ten years down the road? You don't necessarily have to do it right away. Things can change. Right. That, that, that surgery, that, that law says that you can do things 10, 10 20 years down the road and should, should still be covered by insurance. Um, so nothing is ever really permanent, mm -hmm. um, but your surgical decision should not only count, take into account what your survival and your recurrence comfort level is, but also um, what your aesthetic level, aesthetic desire is. Because again, there is going to be a, a life after this. Okay. Um, okay. So one of the options is implants, and one of the things that we do, we won't go into everything today. Right. Um, we'll go into it another time. But <laughs> we talked about capsular contractor, Christina mentioned capsular contractor and breast implant illness, BII. Um, breast implant illness is, you know how you can like look at a microscope and say, hey, that's definitely a breast cancer? There is nothing specific about breast implant illness that we can find. There's no lab, there's no um, pathologic finding that we can find um, when we take something out that says this patient definitely has mm -hmm. breast implant illness. But I think it really does exist because a lot of patients who have come to me, not even just with cancer, but patients who come to me with their implants and they've had it for five, 10 years and they say, I have felt like crap these last several years and I just want them out. They're, I think it's more of an immune system. They're saying that. Yeah. They're an, saying that um, sometimes even patients, this is signed off what I've studied. <laughs> um, and I'm not, it's not coming from her. <laughs> but I've heard and read that even if you have an autoimmune disease, you need to bring that to the attention of your physician because they're finding it may be yeah. a link to that. Yeah, and so it may be your body slowly reacting, or not slowly reacting, but reacting to the fact that you've got a foreign body in there. Um, and that foreign body is inert. It doesn't do anything, but it's your body that's trying to fight it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of patients who tell me that they have this they're just tired, they don't want it, it hurts, everything hurts all the time since they've got the implants in. I can't, again, I can't um, pinpoint a lab that I can draw and show and prove to them that they've got breast implant illness, but as soon as we remove that implant, it's ridiculous. It's like night and day. They have a yes. total change of just aura about them. Because mm -hmm. um, she brought it to my attention. I had never heard of breast implant illness. I was determined. I was going to get these dad on implants, and that summer, I'm going to get the liposuction for fat grafting and have a little snatchness going on, a little bit better, you know? So that was, that was my whole thing, but I remember my joints were hurting. Um, I you remember because I was getting up hurt, yeah. walking. I couldn't walk very far. Also, gastrointestinally, 
I would eat and literally go to the bathroom right after I eat. My stomach wouldn't hurt. It just came right back through me. I had you question me about having a low grade temperature. I remember because you were like, "This COVID had just started," and you were like, "Are you okay?" <laughs> I thought about that. No, every time I came in, I had a low grade temperature. It, it, I started out. I had a 103 for three nights right after surgery when I got home because I blew you up about that. I'm like, "What's going on? I'm, I think I'm sick or have an infection." She put me on antibiotics. There was nothing, nothing other than she was like, "You have breast implant illness," because it was. So in that low grade, it was like 99.9 until the implant came out. And then it was like, I remember coming to my first appointment. She's like, oh, my God, you're like so much like you're walking. You're more lively because I was tired. I had headaches. It was horrible. But she brought it to my attention. And I have not found too many women who have they've gone to their doctor and complained and seen a difference after they've gotten the implants out. But not too many of them, their doctors are saying this could be an issue. And honestly, I didn't even get to the implant. It was the reaction to the um, expander, which you told yeah. me was made out of the same material. Yeah. So it's not, again, it's not something that we can definitely prove, but it's something that we should anecdotally talk to our patients about and just see how they're feeling about it. Right. Maybe just for the last thing, and if anyone has a question, um, maybe two, uh, put them in the chat. I have my phone, so I'm looking down to see if you have any questions because we're going to go ahead. She's been so gracious <laughs> to come on after... <laughs> Because it's my fault. It's so my fault. I just have an old phone, and I really don't care about phones, and so I don't want to. I don't care about getting a new one. Anyways, capsular contracture. Capsular contracture. All right. So, uh, foreign body, right? We were talking about foreign bodies. Whenever you put a foreign body in somebody, whether it is an implant or a knee, a breast implant or knee prosthetic or something like that. Your body wants to protect itself, so it will form scar tissue around it, scar tissue being what we call a capsule. So it's not bad, it's normal. That's just what we call the capsule. Over time, um, it doesn't happen all the time, but over time, let's pretend like you get into a car, I don't know why people are getting into car crashes, but you get into a car crash, and you're, you hit your chest against, your, against the, the wheel or something your scar tissue will, which was completely normal before, will start to say, hey, oh my gosh, there's this implant here. I'm gonna start contracting around it and protect my body from this implant. So if any of you out there have an implant and then you've noticed that one is a little bit harder than the other, or um, it hurts or it starts riding up, that's a sign that you possibly can have capsular contracture because your body, which is that scar tissue around it, is really trying to squeeze that implant and protect your body from the implant. And imagine that implant is a fixed, it's a fixed um, volume. Like it's not going to, the more you squeeze it, it's not like it's gonna leak somewhere else. It's gonna get harder and harder and harder. So for patients who have like one hard one and one soft one, it may potentially be capsular contracture. Yeah. What is the, what is the, um, what do you have to do about it? Nothing really, clinically nothing you have to do about it, but I think the, what patients, what I would say to patients is to remove it. The way to fix capsular contractor is actually remove the implant and remove that capsule around it. And that's the way to fix breast implant illness as well, just remove that implant. Um, yeah. So could they get an implant after capsular contractor? You can get an implant after capsular contractor. There's a, but we have, to, but you have to know you develop capsular contractor before. It doesn't mean you're, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get it again, but you potentially can. Okay. And aesthetic flat closure, can you just describe what that is a little bit? So aesthetic flat closure is a way that we are really trying, 
again, it's us knowing that there's a life after breast mm-hmm. cancer, right? That this is a dumb, dumb interval in our life and there's going to be more life afterwards. And so again, when you're looking in the mirror, what do I want to see? Do I want to see implants? Do I want to be, be flat? If you want to be flat, that's awesome. There is a growing trend, a growing uh, a volume, body of people who are wanting to be flat because I think it all goes back to like taking control. Yeah, it's, it's taking choice. control of your body and knowing that these things try to kill me and I don't care for them anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of patients who don't feel that way and that's fine for them, but for patients who want to go flat, know that it's great, but also know that you shouldn't look like you're wrinkly everywhere. Right, um, that's the biggest thing. So yeah. I remember, I'm not going to say where I learned this from, but um, <laughs> I'm going to say I just wasn't happy with what I learned. Um, when I, how am I, how am I going to say this without implicating? Uh, anyways, people I trained with before, uh, it was not prettiest. It was not always the prettiest closure because mm-hmm. Not all of us are skinny little things where if you take out a little piece and that's it, you're flat. Um, you have surgeons still have to do some work, right? Because if you're if you've got a lot of back fat, for example, if I just remove your breast, just the breast, you've got a lot of back fat here that can look like a little yeah, lollipop dog, dog ear, a huge dog ear. Yeah. yeah, it's like a lot of tissue back there. So there's a lot of methods, a lot of surgical um, methods that we could use to pull that tissue over and make it flat, so you're not like flat here, but then flabby back there. Um, so, and there's different ways and different scars that you can have um, that you can get what's called an aesthetic flat closure, meaning you're flat and aesthetically pleasing. Um, it's more like a contour. So, yeah, more of a contour, think of the mind of a man, and he has a flat chest and it's contoured. We have a lot of breast cancer survivors having surgeries, and I can say it, and they look like they look mangled. And I'm just going to be honest. There's been stories of people right before they were getting, they, they showed the surgeon what they wanted. Uh, her name is Kim Bowles. Um, there's another lady that I know. Um, and they woke up, and they looked nothing like the picture that they showed the doctor. They had excess skin everywhere. And before surgery, they showed them they wanted a contoured aesthetic flat closure. They said, yes, we can do it. And in her story, it was right before he put the mask on her. He said, I'm going to leave you some skin in case you want to do reconstruction. But that's not what she asked for. so terrible. But. Yeah. um, That's terrible. But know that if you are one of those women, you can get it fixed. Right. And should be covered by insurance, by biotic, okay? With, unfortunately, and it's a terrible diagnosis to have, but with that diagnosis, you can essentially get a bunch of things covered by insurance. Okay. Okay. There is one question, and we're going to end. If you develop BII from one brand of implant, would changing the brand of implant make a difference? Probably not for most patients. Um, I, I mean, I think... And there are two different types of implants. There's a saline implant and a silicone implant. I don't think, I mean, if you're really set on having implants, I would try. I don't think you're going to get the same kind of, I, I, don't, I don't, you can try. Um, I'm not going to say, yes, you'll definitely get better. I doubt if it truly is breast implant illness and there's not another underlying issue that's going on, right? It could be something else. But if there truly isn't any anything underlying that's going on, then I would venture to say you're probably going to feel the same way about that second implant that you do the first. Now, if you switch to a saline implant, perhaps that might be different. 
um, maybe your body will feel a little bit differently from that. But I, I think that's another option to do is going from silicone to saline or saline to silicone. And then also know that you still could try autologous reconstruction if that's really what you want to do. If you really want to have a breast bound there, you can move tissue from somewhere else to your chest wall. So you have the deep flap, which we talked about that. Your lap flap. Is your lap flap, yeah. What about just plain old liposuction and sucking? And back grafting. I think you talked to me because you yeah. were like, no more about Because <laughs> I was so messed up, but yeah, yeah but um, I didn't know. So you can still do, you can do a lot of lipo and then kind of create. So that's what um, a lot of people are doing, breast augmentation that way. The problem with that is that if you do that and create a, as a big enough breast mound, you can develop fat necrosis and mm -hmm. then worry, hey, is there a lump there because it's cancer? Or is there a lump there because it's fat necrosis? Okay. So, as we wrap up, because um, we're going to we'll talk about advocacy some other time. So, the wrap-up question is, what is one word you would want people to live by as we deal with the scars of our life and why? Because scars is not just about the physical, but it's also about the mental. So yeah. what's like one word? So I, this is my new word this year. And the reason it's my new word this year is because I'm really not a big, well, okay, I'm lying. I'm a big <laughs> resolution, like New Year's resolution thing. But instead of doing Year's resolution this year, I decided to have, I don't know who put it in my head, but like a word resolution. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it really speaks to me for everything. And I think it really helps with patients is purpose. Mm. So Everything that I'm doing this year has purpose. When you look at yourself, you need to think about yourself as what is my purpose? What, what's, what am I going to do tomorrow? And what purpose does it serve me? Um, scars. What purpose does it serve me? And if it does not serve me anything and it want me to change it, then change it. Um, emotionally, what is that thing that I'm holding on to? What purpose is it serving in my life? Why am I holding on to that? And if it doesn't serve anything, then I need to work on making it go away. Um, or taking control of it. Taking, yeah, just just, just owning it. Um, so I think purpose is my word. Okay. For the year. Well, with that, I'm going to leave her with a word, and then we're going to end this. And the word that I give to you is courageous. And the reason why I say that, hopefully I won't cry with this. <laughs> The reason why I say courageous is because I know for a fact that you are a female in an industry that has been for years predominantly men. Um, it's getting better. But at the same time, your courageousness in it is to stand. You, you've been standing tall, tall, excuse me, standing tall in your truth and with your patience. You hear your patience. Regardless if you have one like me who's like, what's going on? <laughs> I'm dying. Like, it's just, you have always stood tall. You've listened. We talk or whatever. We, we come up with the plan and we execute. But it takes courage to be in an industry that has not always been governed by someone like you, whether it be a person of color, whether it be a person from another culture, ethnicity, whatever it may be. You have been courageous. Don't cry. <laughs> and I want you to continue to be courageous. Because there's lives dependent on it. And I know that you probably had to go through a lot of scars for yourself, mentally and physically, maybe even. Um, but I know definitely mentally with doing this. But continue to stand tall in your courage. Whatever your faith or belief in, stand in that. And so I just want to leave you with continue to be courageous. Thank you. And thank all of you for listening tonight. I have held her up 
long enough. This is lovely. We're going to We're going to do it again. We definitely got to talk about sex, and we got to something else we had to talk about. But a lot of people ask me about sex, especially after double mastectomy and hysterectomy. So we'll touch on all that, and we'll find an oncologist for the medicine yes. part one day. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for watching. Don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel and our podcast, as well as go over to the website and check me out, see what services I offer as well. But even not, it's okay because you, I have a blog that I give out for free every month. So come on over. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you for listening to Our Scars Speak. And we hope you can join us again real soon. Meanwhile, remember that our mental and physical scars speak a story that can help heal the wounds of another.